3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and this is Priya, and with me is Carly. Good morning, Carly. How are you? Uh, Good morning, listeners. Yeah, um, I'm doing okay, Priya. (laughs) Thank you for asking. Um, How about yourself? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Um, It's been a full-on couple of weeks, um, and hopefully we can bring you some of the important conversations that have been happening during this pretty tumultuous time. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, pretty jam-packed show today. Um, So maybe we'll just get straight into it. Um, So first up, we're going to be hearing um, an MPD 150 um, in interview by Mariki at Progress uh, 2020. So last week we also played some audio from Progress 2020. Um, And this morning you're going to be hearing a powerful conversation on creating police-free futures. So three community organisers from MPD 150, Ariana Nason, Jay Huan Shim, Molly Glasgow, Drew Mariki Onis, co-founder of Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, to discuss lessons and insights from MPD 150's work towards dismantling the police force in Minneapolis, US. Awesome. And next we're going to hear a conversation between Anya Saravanan from 3CR's Women on the Line, who spoke with Tigist Kabide, a counsellor and volunteer at the AMSA Youth Connect Centre, about what's been happening in the housing estates after the lockdown was announced. So this is in relation to the Flemington, Kensington and North Melbourne public housing estates in Melbourne. Um, Women on the Line broadcasts from on Mondays on 3CR from 8.30 to 9 a.m. and is available on podcasts if you want to check that out as well. Um, just a content warning. Um, please be aware that this show or this segment of Women on the Line was recorded at a time when the residents in these estates were in lockdown and the situation does continue to evolve rapidly. And please also be aware that this segment of the show contains some descriptions of police brutality. So this type of content is a trigger for you. Please feel free to contact Lifeline on 131114 or at lifeline.org.au. And then lastly, Priya, you had the opportunity to speak with distinguished professor Aileen Morton Robinson. Tell us more. Yeah. So, um, I had the immense privilege of chatting with Professor Aileen Morton Robinson about the 20th edition of her groundbreaking book, Talking Up to the White Woman, Indigenous Women and Feminism, which was released by the University of Queensland Press on the 2nd of July, 2020. So brand new um, updated edition with a new preface and the addition of a reflective essay on the original book um, by Professor Morton Robinson. Um, yeah, really, really keen to play that interview. And I'm equally as keen to listen to it. <laughs> awesome. Well, com- that'll be coming up soon. But for now, we go to Kate Kelly with the news. 
Good morning, I'm Kate Kelly and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. International students in Melbourne are bracing for more hardship after the city returned to a six-week lockdown prompted by a spike in coronavirus cases. So Melbournians who have lost work or have had, who have been forced to close their business can access boosted unemployment benefits or the JobKeeper wage subsidy. But international students and other temporary visa holders are locked out of federal government assistance. So before the pandemic, many supported themselves through part-time or casual work, with an option that has become increasingly difficult after the return to stage three restrictions. Many international students have turned to food banks to be able to eat. It comes as Chinese students fled Melbourne for Sydney before the lockdown, fearing that they would be stuck and unable to return home with no income. And a coronial inquest has been launched after a 19-year-old Aboriginal man died after an incident at Acacia Prison in Western Australia, a little more than a month after another prisoner died at the same facility. The man was found unresponsive in his cell in the Warloo Jail about an hour east of Perth on Saturday. The WA Department of Justice said it would not comment on the death as it was now subject to an investigation. It is the second death in custody of an Aboriginal detainee at Acacia Prison in the past two months. Early last month, a 40-year-old Aboriginal male prisoner was found collapsed at the prison and was later pronounced dead at hospital. And anyone who's distressed um, by this is encouraged to call Lifeline on 131114. And a new survey released by Pew Research Centre shows that 81% of Australians say gay rights should be accepted by society. The figure is up just 2% from 2013 when the worldwide survey was last conducted. So across the world, attitudes towards homosexuality are changing according to the research. Australia was among the few countries in the world where a large majority of the population said LGBTQI rights should be accepted. The others were Sweden, the Netherlands, Spain, UK, France, Germany and Canada. And at the bottom of the the list was Nigeria, Tunisia, Indonesia, Lebanon, Ukraine, Kenya and Russia. So the younger generation women and those who were educated are more likely to say that society should be accepting of same-sex relations. The other factors that seem to affect acceptance of homosexuality in a country, according to the research, were wealth, religion and political ideology. And that's all for Thursday's headlines. I hope you're enjoying Thursday morning breakfast so far. Now we're going to head into a new track by Alice Skye. This one is Grand Ideas.
Just then, we heard from Alice Skye, Grand Ideas. You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. In 2016, a group of community organisers, researchers and activists in Minneapolis in the US founded MPD 150, a project to curate historical data and stories on the 150-year history of the Minneapolis Police Department. Their research concluded that the Minnesota police force has acted in violently racist ways since its inception and argued that the police must be abolished and replaced with other programs that focus on community safety. In June 2020, the Minneapolis Council voted unanimously to disband the police force. Up next, we hear a powerful conversation with campaigners from MPD 150 on lessons and insights into what made MPD 150 a success and how it can be applied to the Australian context. This is a 15-minute edited version of an hour-long conversation at the Virtual Progress 2020 conference, facilitated by Mariki Onus, co-founders of Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. You'll hear from three members of MPD 150 in this conversation. First, acupressurist, author and facilitator Molly Glasgow. Second, Jay Hyun Shim, was a queer, non-binary, transracial, transnational adoptee from South Korea. And thirdly, Ariana Nason, an Anishinaabekwe healing justice facilitator, disability activist and abolitionist. Heads up, it's an action-packed 15 minutes. The first voice you'll hear is Mariki Onis introducing this powerful conversation on disbanding the police and insights from MPD 150. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, I've read a little bit about um, MPD 150. Um, Can you share, either any of you just share a little bit about why MPD 150 came about and 
what started, what, what was the um, catalyst for starting MPD 150? Molly, do you want to go first? Sure. So as Mariki shared, we are a group of um, activists, organizers, researchers, healers um, who came together the year before the Minneapolis Police Department was going to hit its 150th anniversary. Um, and we came together to do a, a performance review of the police department from the people's perspective. So we evaluated the 150th year history. We presented a comprehensive report of historical events, a cycle of reforms and, um, and the resources that exist and need to be created. We also collaborated with artists to host an exhibit um, and now have created a version, a 2.0 version of the report with even more pop ed resources. And we'll have that um, coming out in the coming weeks. Um, so we were, um, we, we tasked ourselves, I guess, with um, not only doing a performance review of the police department, but also laying out a vision for what a police free future could be like. Um, and now we, we're in this moment um, in Minneapolis where George Floyd's murder, uh, George Floyd is a black man who was murdered um, by three officers who were on top of him and one who stood guard. And um, it, how brutal it was, but also how casual it was, speaks to how deeply ingrained uh, white supremacy and anti-blackness are in the systems of policing in general, and especially um, in the United States and our city. And um, so when we look to that, we're looking to how US police forces were modeled after um, the Metropolitan Police Department in London, which was based off of the Royal Constabulary in Ireland, uh, set up to control indigenous populations. So we, that, that tradition of controlling indigenous people was carried to the, what we call now the United States. Um, and, and coupled with genocide of indigenous peoples, as well as protecting the property um, of white people and, um, and how black people were enslaved. And then as they were liberating themselves towards freedom and, um, and leaving the places where they were enslaved, that slave patrols were set up to stop them from going to that freedom. And um, it was between the slave patrols and the local militias that were designed after the police force in London that the modern day policing began. And so um, that's the, the history of policing that we, we stand on, that we come to this work with. And, um, and now as an organization, we're focused on shifting the narrative and, um, and helping shift people towards imagining what a police-free future can look like. Yeah, so Minneapolis. We've been watching how the media is framing it, uh, riots and burning police stations, but um, you don't really get there and you don't get to a decision passed in council in such a unanimous way overnight, I bet, there was years of organising and relationship building behind that and undoing and unlearning and relearning. Can you tell us a little bit about how you organised within, um, how you organised within the structures of um, like city council um, and to, to pass such a, um, such a, such a historic and momentous um, motion to disband the police I mean that just doesn't happen overnight it doesn't just happen um, in a vacuum so and, and it's a big question but I am genuinely interested in to know how I, I mean and in politics 
um, and, and organisers and activists generally tried to um, organise outside of structures like the City Council. But I want to know how you organised within the City Council to get such um, a great um, outcome and what the work went into in getting that outcome. I know that's a big loaded question, but I guess that's, yeah, that's what we all want to know is how did you make that happen? Quite honestly, part of the strength in organizing here in Minneapolis and St. Paul is how small of a city we truly are and the ways that we can have deep relationships with people who have intersecting issues that they care about. So um, one of the really nice things that happened when the MPD 150 report was launched is some, some people from our group made share copies of it got to every city council member and all of their aides. Um, so the report existed in City Hall in a lot of different capacities and with people who would actually read it, which is, um, there's a lot of things that have made this moment possible in Minneapolis. And those things are a combination of electoral organizing, deep narrative strategy, ability and time for people to sit with difficult conversations because of the amount of times MPD has brutalized people in our city. Every year we get to have this conversation again in a different, more horrible way. Um, and so there's part of it where we're getting really good at the combo and part of it where we're getting really tired of it. And I think that those two things have added. And because the campaign we ran with City Hall was pretty specifically around divesting from MPD and investing in community solutions, which most of the campaigns against police are set up that way at City Hall, I think. That gave our council members the language to be able to have these conversations with their constituent base for the past few years, instead of only having this conversation now when everything is literally on fire. So there was a lot of space and time and build up for this to happen. And our council members right now happen to be one of the most progressive councils we've ever had in our city. That's super intentional. People worked really hard to get them into those spots. And we've been able to hold them accountable to that a lot. Um, as organizers, we've been able to remind them that they got those seats because people believed certain things about what they would do with them. And so now is the time to do it. We have a really long history and a pretty deep history of organizing, I think, kind of around Minneapolis. We have organizers who are on the city council. We have people we know who they've organized with in the past. So we have other levers to help remind people of what their actual values are when they start to forget what they are because politics is messy. With that being said, too, um, I just want to also like like keep uplifting and echoing that like this was not an accident this work is not an accident this has been years and years and years in the making um currently uh, our city council and our mayor uh when everyone was running for election everyone was required to answer the question of whether or not they could envision a police free minneapolis and so this was something that was they were already having to thinking or having to think about and to be accountable for before they even were in office Although that we have we have all different perspectives and different organising and activist groups here in um, so-called Melbourne, um, but I think that um, police abolition and defunding the police can something is something that we can actually all genuinely work together um, collectively on, regardless of what our end goal is. And I think that this is a you know this is something that people can camp 
campaign and organise on collectively despite having different goals, um, end goals. I saw online uh, that there were people who weren't familiar with your organisation saying that um, replacing the police with other forms of community policing um, isn't an answer either. And um, I'm just wondering, out, outside of the, um, the the vote to council, what's happening next um, and what's happened since that, that, um, that decision? Some of the things that are happening right now, um, for this to actually be a possibility here in Minneapolis, one of the things that needs to happen to truly be able to defund the police is we need to departmentalize the police as well, which means right now in our city charter, there is a department named Minneapolis Police Department, and it must exist because it is in the city charter. And so the ask now is going to be that city council open up that charter and remove the police department to put something different in there. Because if it is written into the charter, there's no way around having peace officers or police officers or however you want to frame their presence in our city. Um, so that's what's happening politically and with the city council. There's also going to be a budget amendment coming up here because of the pandemic and a city budget shortfall that exists now. Um, and so what we're doing is we are doing that thing where you have to build the plane while you're flying it. And we're leaning into a lot of past knowledge, a lot of deep work that's already happened. AIM Patrol is the American Indian Movement Patrol that sprung up here in the 60s and reinvigorated itself in like no time flat when the uprising started and came together and protected a whole chunk of the neighborhood just north of me and has held the protection for many folks night after night. Um, so we're seeing it happen in a lot of different ways. And we're seeing, I'm seeing white people in my network hold each other accountable to the shitty policey things that they continue to say on social media. And that is a change that feels really wonderful and delicious to me that's different this moment than others. That's amazing. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, and really useful lessons for us back home, um, you know, having allies hold each other accountable so we can do the work and educate each other. I think that's so important. Um, and I will comment, you know, after, and I don't know what, how much you all know about what's happening here in this country, um, but, yeah, Aboriginal people um, are, and I only use this as a standpoint because I think comparisons are a zero-sum game. Um, Aboriginal people are seven times more likely to be incarcerated than African-Americans. So we're some of the most incarcerated peoples in the world and our police, our people are controlled by the police here. Um, and it was, it's really heartening to see um, the reinvigoration of the, um, the AIM patrol um, to come up. And, you know, it's almost like a gift from our ancestors as well when I see that kind of stuff in play here. So I saw on the website that there was a strong focus on community education. I think there's a lot to learn from that and I think the community education is really key to a lot of the work that you do. And I actually want to mention that um, this is also where the arts come in to most play and this is how we in our organising as well use um, Aboriginal artists to imagine a future without police as well to help convey that beyond words and beyond reading. 
I want to keep uplifting kind of the intention of how MPD 150 was started and the way that that has carried out our mission over time. And, and that is really being based in community. Um, we were very firm and adamant about not doing any of this work for elected officials. We are not trying to appease them. We're not trying to impress them. And so this work, <laughs> this work is so critical to remember that we are deeply rooted in the fact that our work is by the people for the people from the core. Um, we are not doing anything new. We are not doing anything that hasn't been said already. We are merely amplifying the voices and adding some support and uh, offering a creative space for this message and this work to be really laid out. Um, so yes, like community engagement is, and, and community education is absolutely a huge part of this, is absolutely a huge part because without community, without connection, without uh, being in relationship to one another, then none of this will be fruitful. Um, we talk about our work a lot from the from the idea of like we've been planting seeds. We've been planting seeds in a garden and nurturing the soil and tending to the soil over time and waiting for the rainfall. And here it is. Here's the rainfall and our garden is blooming. And that is the community education is, is continuously like being a part of that and being in a relationship to the land of what we're talking about, to the literal land that we're on and understanding the stories that are here already. Thank you, Ariana. There's no separation, is there? You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 855am on your dial, and you've been listening to a powerful conversation from the Virtual Progress 2020 Conference on disbanding and dismantling the police. You've heard from Ricky Onus from Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance here in Nam, and three organisers from MPD 150 in Minneapolis in the United States, Ariana Nason, Jay Hyun Shim, and Molly Glasgow. You can listen and watch the whole conversation on Vimeo Online, and you can find out more about MPD 150's incredible work towards dismantling the Minneapolis Police Department and creating a police-free future at www.mpd150.com. Stay tuned to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Now we're going to head into a new track. This one features Mac Ridge and Barker, 22 Clan. Too clean, baby. Yeah, yeah. Set their door, set the record straight. My team heavyweight. One more rep and we the first to originate. Y'all can try to discriminate, you've been doing it anyway. We just keep stepping, coming up, watch us elevate. Doom side, Taylor Park, rivers in the pen rip. Mac Ridge ripping, no, I never let the pen slip. Mary's at the crime, bro, way up to the ridge. One log to the mob, out in West Side City. You better be ready to get it, I'm spitting the kick in the rhythm and moving the difference. So go on and listen, we're bringing the vision of Fatigue with it, we got them all dripping. Listen, Murph from the Mac Town. Not here in black tear, no question about it. Joey got to bring it back, so what's the half? Who we be? Running with the 22 clan. Who we be? Running with the 22 clan. Where we be? B and E down to SYD. Steady rapping for our original peace. Who we be? Running with the 22 clan. Who we be? Running with the 22 clan. Where we be? B and E down to SYD. Steady rapping for our original peace. You say I'm oppressed, but you oppressed in the mark. Why you crying for if it's just only a day? It's a day where all my women got beaten and raped. 
waiting for a river to flush. I run my mouth like Kathy's legs and I back it all up. Got my brothers on the sideline and the runger ball up. What? From the big smoke, but this tit is connected. Well respected, I'm a reflection of my mother's perception. I stay flexing, even when I question some of my lessons. It's a blessing I have this melanin in my complexion. I got my mob on my back. Curry cried to the death. We're gonna braid them all black until we've the last ones left. And I am backing down from no one till I give my respect. Yes, I'm a little radical, but you just get what you get. Who we be? Running with the 22 clear. Who we be? Running with the 22 clear. Where we be? B-N-E down to S-Y-D. Steady rapping for our original piece. Who we be? Running with the 22 clear. Who we be? Running with the 22 clear. Where we be? And just then we heard 22 Clan by Macridge and Barker. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Now we're going to head into a segment from 3CR's Women on the Line, where Anya Saravanan speaks with Tikist Kabidi, counsellor and volunteer at AMSA Youth Connect, about what was happening in the housing estates after the lockdown was announced. Women on the Line broadcasts Monday, 8.30am to 9am, and this is available on podcast. Please be aware that this segment was recorded at a time when the residents in these estates were in lockdown and the situation continues to evolve rapidly. Please also be aware that today's segment contains descriptions of police brutality. If this type of content is a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or lifeline.org.au. So my name is Tigis Kibidi. I'm a community volunteer down at Amsa in North Melbourne. My background is in mental health and um, therapy. So have you been talking to the residents much since the um, hard lockdown was imposed? So since the hard lockdown has been imposed, residents have been able to communicate with their the people who are not locked down. So um, they've been able to call us, they've been able to um, send us messages. We currently have a... Uh, a order list going on for particular orders for um, residents in all the flats. So we've got special orders going through as well as generic bags going through as well. So we're able to communicate with them quite quickly. And we're also able to communicate with their family and friends who are not locked down, who the residents might not have our details and their family are either dropping off supplies or coming here specifically to speak on their behalf. And so what have the residents been telling you? Essentially, um, the, the information that we're getting from the residents and the information that we are also getting as well going up to the flats is that there are inconsistent practices going aboard, um, whether it's you're in North Melbourne, between North Melbourne flats, whether you're in Flemington and between the four Flemington flats, there's inconsistent practices occurring. Um, the residents are, are, are uninformed as to what's happening. Um, we are receiving inconsistent responses. We are delivering food as much as we can that it's completely dependent upon the individual who happens to be at the building and what their responses are instead of a organised logistical response from the government. So as a result, the residents were unable to receive food and essential items in particular flats. 
or the food and items that they did receive were culturally inappropriate, it was expired, it was left outside, frozen items had become unfrozen because they'd been left outside for so long. Um, and as a result, residents are more likely to trust and more likely to engage in community-based resources than they are from a government or a state response. Mm. And have any of the government workers um, or people who are stationed there offered to speak directly with the residents or with community groups like yours? So the people who are stationed there are constantly trying to speak to us. Mm. However, the difficulties that we're having is nothing is able to be actioned. So they are aware of us. We are standing right in front of the North Melbourne flood. There's there's no lack of information in regards to um, what we are doing and how we are doing it. The, the issues are occurring in regards to a speedy and timely response. Whether it's DHHS, whether it's VigPol, um, there's so much bureaucratic red tape that exists. And as a result, the, the people who are mostly impacted by these are the residents and the community responders who, are, who have supplies, who have difficulty bringing them up. Yeah. In your opinion, what should have happened? What could the government have done instead? So in my opinion, and in the opinions um, that uh, Voices from the Block are sharing, is that all public housing estates should not have been treated discriminatorily. They should be treated like their the post-closed area and, be, and they should be treated equally. They should withdraw the 500 police in there and actually place healthcare, social responses, that are more appropriate to a public health crisis. They should be implementing infection prevention measures as well as ensuring the um, the financial, mental and physical safety of the residents. And the only way that you can do that is withdraw these hard lockdown measures and treat them like the rest of the citizens in their area. Mm. And what are the residents' demands currently? So currently our key demands are Firstly, for all public housing estates to be placed under stage three COVID-19 restrictions, mm-hmm. like our neighbours, so we can leave our homes for work, for education, exercise, Medicare, caregiving, shopping and other supplies. Secondly, for the Victorian government to withdraw the all 500 police officers and authorise officers from the inside of all the public housing estates. Thirdly, the Victorian government to implement infection prevention measures such as regular disinfection and cleaning of communal areas distribution of masks. Also, for the Victorian government to set up testing sites in working distance of the public housing estates instead of the four-year inside public housing estates building in order to prevent the risk of spreading COVID-19. And lastly, for the Victorian government to coordinate services in support of current community-led activities that are responding to the residents' food, medical, financial, mental health and social service needs. And for the general public, how can they support the residents? The way that the general public can support the residents is to amplify the voices of the residents, is to continuously amplify their detention and how their wrongful treatment. In material aid, we have enough support. Volunteers, we have enough support. Right now, we are saying that we need to be treated in a culturally and humanitarian response. So... They want to be treated exactly like their other residents. So what the, um, the general public can be can do is call their members of parliament. They can call um, 
any politician that they are aware of, um, advocate as much as that they can, they can protest, they can use the, the privileges and rights that they have that these residents don't have to uplift their voices to ensure that their voices are heard. And just then we heard Anya Saravanan from 3CR's Women on the Line speaking with Tigas Kavidi, councillor and volunteer at AMSA Youth Connect, about what was happening in the housing estates after the lockdown was announced. All right, so this one is a newly released track um, by a fella up in Menjun, Brisbane. And this one is Gemini by Sashim. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, matter of fact, all the beautiful people of this world, I'd like to welcome you on a journey where pain meets pleasure and pleasure meets pain. Aha, that's life, right? A journey where things are so real that they might seem unbelievable. But trust me, this is real as it gets. And if you open your mind, open your soul, you might just find your truth. So sit back, put your feet up, and enjoy this ride. It's my life, baby. Get a breath. Uh, to my mind's always see the truth. I'm searching for a deeper meaning hidden in my roots. Asking questions like, will I be alright? And where the fuck do we go when we sleep at night? Many questions asked, many mental scars, a lot of trauma, and it's sitting on my sacred heart. Man, what do I do? Where do I go? All I know, I gotta breathe, I gotta take it slow I gotta meditate, let my spirit flow I gotta elevate, even when I'm feeling low Even when I'm feeling down and out I found a route, I counts with a large amount Without a doubt, you'll find a debt I found my heart, you bounce the check I push to start, I push for more And even scores and even more I come for your neck, now you ain't breathing no more I be overseas, homie, please, I grow more The scenes that I've seen, homie, people die for a dream I achieve, I strive for Sashim is a chief, homie, cut the phone call I be overseas, homie, please, I grow more The scenes that I've seen, homie, people die for Believe in a dream I achieve, I strive for I'm a chief, cut the phone call It's like these nights are getting colder My eyes are getting older I'm seeing people different Cause I be looking closer Search between the cracks and lines Search between the lyrics So I see if I can find The real reason why I've been feeling this way And I see the light Coming close each day And my brother it is right Everything will be alright If you can't see all the signs I would advise you to pray Cause they speak in my dreams And yes they speak to me They call me let it go Because they know when I see And we haven't for long And so I'm writing this song To all my brothers out there Not rewriting their wrongs It's on I said I be overseas Homie please I grow more The scenes that I've seen Homie People die for believe in a dream I achieve. I strive for Sashim is a chief, homie. Cut the phone call. I be overseas, homie. Please, I grow more. The scenes that I've seen, homie. People die for believe in a dream I achieve. I strive for. I'm a chief. Cut the phone call. Just then, we heard Gemini, a new one from Sashim. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Next up is an interview with distinguished professor Aileen Morton Robinson about the 20th edition of her groundbreaking book, Talking Up to the White Woman, Indigenous Women and Feminism, which was released by the University of Queensland Press on the 2nd of July, 2020. Professor Morton Robinson is a grown pole woman of the Kwandamooka people, Morton Bay. 
She's Australia's first Indigenous Distinguished Professor and is a Professor of Indigenous Research at RMIT University. She was formerly the Director of the Australian Research Council's National Indigenous Research and Knowledges Network, a national program that has capacity built Indigenous postgraduate students and early career researchers. Distinguished Professor Morton Robinson served as president of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Higher Education Consortium in 2019. She's also the founding president of the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association. Professor Morton Robinson's publications have international standing and global reach. Her recent monograph, The White Possessive, Property, Power and Indigenous Sovereignty, published in 2015, won the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association, or NASA's subsequent book prize in 2016. Her latest edited collection entitled Critical Indigenous Studies, First World Locations and Engagement was published by Minnesota Press in 2016. Professor Morton Robinson has served on the editorial boards of several journals, including American Quarterly, the Journal of the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association, Australian Feminist Studies, Cultural Studies Review, and Critical Ethnic Studies. She's the founding editor of the International E-Journal of Critical Indigenous Studies. And in 2020, Professor Morton Robinson was elected as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a very prestigious honor. So huge introduction. Um, Professor, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Thursday Breakfast. It's a massive honor to have you on here. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, that was a huge introduction, which kind of made me feel like, oh boy. <laughs> no, I think you <laughs> know, stop right now. <laughs> it is, it's, it's worthwhile uh, rehashing your wonderful achievements, especially considering we're talking about the groundbreaking book, Talking Up, mm -hmm. which has had such a massive, massive impact on um, critical race studies, on the nature of feminism, especially when we're thinking about um, Indigenous and women of colour feminisms. And mm -hmm. yeah, it'd be great to start off just by um, having a bit of a chat about how you came to settle on the topic of Indigenous women and feminism as an area of research and writing, because I know this developed out of your doctoral dissertation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the book actually is, I, you know, does come out of the doctoral dissertation and um, I was really um, exploring uh, the uh, process by which Indigenous women made decisions in native title. And um, what had happened was my elders had agreed to that, but after about six months, I they called me up to talk to me and said that they didn't want me to pursue that um, line of um, exploration. So. I had, however, by then uh, read quite a substantive amount of literature um, in feminism. I had not uh, done any gender studies or feminism as an undergraduate, nor in my honours. So my PhD was really about teaching myself um, feminism. And what became quite obvious was the way in which um, the... The literature itself was kind of what I kind of considered to be quite incestuous in the sense that it was people, you know, referencing each other and there wasn't really a lot of um, evidence of the work actually being based, I guess, in social research. So I started to think 
through that in relation to what kind of um, woman was being constructed. And I had started to read um, uh, women of colour and black feminists work at that at that time as well and could see that those debates were uh, there in the United States in particular and in, in Britain where black feminists were, um, you know, critiquing the idea of this universal woman. And quite clearly for me there was this, um, you know, notion that if gender was socially constructed, then, you know, what's at the root of the social construction of gender in the way in which the woman was being produced and what did that mean in terms of, of Indigenous women? And so I wanted to um, really explore representation because it seemed to me that uh, lots of um, uh, women had written about the other the, you know, in, in, uh, within feminism, but there was not a lot in Australia at that time um, from Indigenous uh, women. I think Jackie Huggins was one of the few um, that had a book out called Sister Girl, and, but most of the other uh, responses to feminism were through journal articles, but there, there wasn't a lot of them. And there was not a lot either from women of colour so I then was, you know, thinking about the idea of, well, how, how, did, how does feminism represent Indigenous women and then how does Indigenous women self-present? Uh, so that was the, the question that guides the book. And I basically set the book up as a conversation between, um, you know, each chapter talks to one another. So I sort of, dissect how anthropology has constructed Indigenous women and then I come back and uh, show how Aboriginal women, um, in terms of their life writings, say this is who we are, you know. So I, I um, yeah, so the book, book is a conversation, mythologically it's a conversation, and it does demonstrate, you know, that the, and I came up with the, the theory of the uh, middle class, subject position middle class woman. Now, and I, I want to be clear that I didn't say that that is, you know, white womanhood per se. The claim was never made that that, despite the fact that there are, you know, claims that I'm universalising white womanhood. I'm just, if you read it, read, read the uh, book carefully, you'll see that it's about a subject position, uh, which is only one dimension of um, white womanhood. Um, I would really have no idea about what white womanhood is apart from that subject position. Uh, because I don't live the life as a white woman. I don't really engage with, um, you know, white female um, community. My, my socially, I socialise mainly with people of colour or really um, Indigenous, you know, my, my mob. So uh, my world is very much, um, I guess, insulated but also uh, and, and, and informed. But the insulation really, I think, is an advantage in terms of how one sees what is being done. So when you're, you know, when you're, when you're, in, it's like being, um, you know, and it's made me think a little bit about the responses to the COVID and the lockdowns, you know, um, the way in which 
people have been, you know, fundamentally put in prison in their homes um, and particularly with the, the you know, the, um, the high-rise living that we've seen in Melbourne and the, the spread of the uh, unfortunate spread, I guess, of the virus. But to me, you know, it's, it's that situation where there's, you're in something and you're looking out at something that's actually impacting on you. So your reading of what actually is occurring um, is quite nuanced, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the most critical interventions that is made in talking up is really naming that invisible subject position that does do a lot of this defining work in, in, in white feminism. And I know that in your 2006 essay, Whiteness Matters, and the implications of talking up to the white woman, um, you reflect on the impacts of the book six years on and the critical reception of the work, shall we say, by white Australian feminists. So including their choice to frame your work and your writing as angry, as aggressive. Um, mm -hmm. Considering these early responses, could you speak to some of the impacts of the work and the way it continues to be received by white feminists, but also by Indigenous people? I think that the reception by... It, it's really quite interesting because... I, um, I haven't necessarily been a keynote speaker or, for that matter, any kind of speaker within um, gender studies in Australia. Um, and, I, you know, I, I state that in the front of the book. Um, so I, the reaction for me was one of their anger towards me uh, because they didn't really uh, like what I'd written. Um, uh, so it was a very emotional and angry response to the book that became transferred onto me. And I also felt, and, and this is, and what's really, really interesting is because I received copyright for the book, I'm really well aware of the fact that it gets utilised quite a lot in Australian universities, but I have no understanding or, of how it's being taught. Um, and I figure that because I'm not invited to give guest lectures or to keynote that, uh, one can only assume that it's being taught in a particular kind of way, um, which, of course, would reinforce the fact that I'm, you know, I'm very angry. Um, I'm just angry all the time, really. Um, and when in actual fact, you know, I'm not. I mean, I'm frustrated with the lack of progress in, uh, in relation to the way in which Australian feminism has uh, dealt with um, Indigenous women's issues and women of colour's issues. Um, I'm also... So I, I figure that it's probably more about, you know, what, what, what the work evoked in them in that sense. Their response from uh, Indigenous women and, and women of colour has... Uh, I think the Indigenous women were... It was overwhelming, like I was... Um, People would, you know, women would say to me, you've given voice to things that we haven't been able to articulate in that way, but we, we, you are actually speaking our truth. And so um, I was very, um, you know, pleased with that response because really the book is for them um, and the book was really about taking uh, a, a particular um, intellectual and uh, political 
stand within feminism to also to, to appeal to the kind of moralism that also underpins feminism you know like like the good white woman um and to right you know raise those questions about well if you know this is the way if, if sisterhood is where it's at and you really are on about oppression then should we not start with actually the most oppressed in terms of dealing with issues um and that uh was not really taken up either i consider intellectually or politically um and you can see from um uh the uh the added chapter on implications of talking up to the women, um, what kind of um, mediocre uh, white intellectual responses were. Um, and so I, you know, I mean, I don't necessarily um, see myself or the work that I do as as needing the accolades of white feminism anyway. I don't, you know, I don't do things because... Um, somehow I want um, to be part of feminism. That's, as I kind of, you know, have stated publicly on several occasions, I don't consider myself to be a feminist. I consider myself to be a, a Gurumpur warrior woman. Um, so, so the, so what informed me, I guess, my standpoint in the book is actually the warriorship, the women's warriorship from, my country and um you know it 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 was also trying to um theorize the the lived conditions of indigenous women and to bring that to um the academy in the hope that there could be a um substantive engagement yeah and i think the the way that you center indigenous women's life writings even though the texts themselves are not necessarily you know quote unquote academic books written mm -hmm. for the academy mm -hmm. but the way that you center that in in that theorizing that you do in talking up is something that really seems to be missed in some of these critiques that really focus on um misplaced rage around um being recognized as a as a middle class white woman um mm -hmm. yeah and i i've also been thinking about the rise over the past few decades of black women and non-binary writers so thinking about people like dr chelsea bond alison whitaker nae gagari who are making specific contributions to debates on whiteness race and indigenous identity that talking up did make that original intervention into um, so mm -hmm. considering your focus on honoring Indigenous women's life writings in that original text, it'd be great to hear your thoughts on the uptake and expansion of these ideas um, in Indigenous women and non-binary people's cultural production um, since. Um, I, I have to say that I think that um, the impact on, in you know, for example, I, I mean, Chelsea Bond, um, you know, I, I saw the copy that Chelsea had actually, and it was like there were just yellow stickers all throughout the book, um, which I, you know, at one level was was really proud of because I thought she's actually taking this seriously, and a lot of my work does inform their their work. That's the bottom line because the the um, the critical race and whiteness uh, stuff in this country really I opened up the 
you know, the space for that. And my work is, um, has impacted, I think I see it when, uh, I mainly see a lot of it actually on social media and in some of the, the things that these young women are writing. And it is, um, you know, it, it's good work, but it's also work that needs to go beyond me and what I have done. I, um, I've always thought that, um, you know, scholars, scholars, people can be public intellectuals, but that's quite different from being a scholar. And um, it's, it's actually the, the thinking, doing that hard work of, you know, producing the books writing the articles, getting, you know, having them reviewed in, in, real, in, in scholarly um, uh, journals um, that, that is, is far more disruptive of um, thinking and knowing than um, to some degree, I believe, than, than street protests. And you're talking to somebody that began their, their life, you know, as an activist. Um, so I'm, I think that there's, yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which we need to think more about how we can change the knowledge production factories, which are universities, that um, where, where knowledge is generated and where knowledge basically informs everything that we do in our lives, but that, the, you know, but... Mm, you know, there's lots of theory, lots of, I, I kind of think, you know, when we um, look at what the way in which newspapers represent us, the me, you know, the media and, and that the pathologising, for example, um, you know, the theories that that's linked to in the academy, you know, um, and uh, the origins, you know, in, in the melting pot theory that came out of the 60s in, in the United States. And then there was the the, um, the cultural poverty thesis that came out. So all that, you know, the way in which those theories filter out into society, um, there's a direct relationship between what we know and construct within the academy, and of course what we teach, and then how people take that up in in discourse. Uh, so I'm 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 wanting to sort of be far more uh, to see these young women really. Um, also think more about engaging with the disciplines that they are trained in rather than kind of using the disciplinary knowledge to critique. You know, there's, there's, you need to do both. Yeah, and it's, it's definitely like a, it's a challenging kind of balance to maintain when the ivory tower asks particular things mm-hmm. of you and allows particular things. Um, and then when there's so much, for example, right now, um, vitriolic public debate going on about Black Lives Matter when mm-hmm. some of these issues shouldn't even be up for debate. Um, mm-hmm. So where do you see um, the critical interventions that have sort of been made in terms of Black women's, Indigenous women's writings around whiteness and feminism um, coming into play in these contemporary debates? I think that I see the impact um, more in in the area of health. Um, you know, racism is now seen to now seen as a determinant of poor health. 
uh, that was like totally off the charts 20 years ago, despite the fact that, of course, the lived experience of racism, you know that that affects your health. Um, so, I, you know, I can see that there, there's, there's change in that area. I think we're starting to also see impact in education where um, although it's not necessarily an impact in terms of anti-racism, but at least there's a sense in which um, uh, that, you know, history, Indigenous history is seen to be important in teaching children. Um, with, and I think that the other important intervention is the way in which uh, women of colour and Indigenous women are conversing and um, forming alliances in ways in which uh, 20 years ago was, just wasn't happening. Uh, and and more more Indigenous women and more women of colour are actually um, challenging feminism. And so I think and that and so I think the book the book opened up a space where that it made it possible that this is what you could do in the Australian context. Um, and and so yeah, I do. I think. And, and like, I, I reread the book to myself and sat back and thought, oh, God, did I write that? But, um, <laughs> but I, you know, and I thought it, it's, it's, a, it's actually began, that's gave me, uh, that was just the beginning of my work. But it actually, there's quite a lot of thing, questions that I guess that I raised in the book that I have pursued in, in my work on uh, white possession in possessiveness, um, in kind of considering and theorising the notion of patriarchal white sovereignty, um, in basically putting forward the ideas more about what in, constitutes Indigenous women's standpoint, the way in which I, I mean, my recent stuff is really about showing the difference, different ontological roots of the Westphalian system of sovereignty and Indigenous sovereignties. And so, so it, the you know, talking up touches on all these things. Uh, so for me, it was it was the beginning of the of the journey, and um, and I pursued that. I do think that it was the beginning of the journey for other women, like uh, Professor Bronwyn Frederick's work in health. Uh, you know, she was one of the first women to kind of take talking up and think about it in terms of Indigenous women's access to to health. Um, and then you've got other other women uh, like Larissa Barrett. I think I have actually influenced Larissa's um, thinking through and, and of the law. Um, so I, I I don't really like to talk. Like it's hard to sit there. I feel um, I'm embarrassed to talk about what I think the influence is on other people because I think only they can really speak for that. Um, it, I certainly see the work cited, you know, um, and uh, so I know it gets used um, in in scholarship. And I, um, I think one of the most moving things for me recently was my great grandniece, both great grandnieces, sitting on the lounge uh, about about to watch me on television on the drum and they both had a copy of the book and they were sitting there with it 
and uh, their mother, you know, their mother and auntie took a photo of them, and they were they were waiting for me to come on, and they had the book in their hands, and and I thought the other side of that is that this is you know this is in their consciousness a reality that um, you know that an Aboriginal professor from their country is actually on television. That's their relative, and they can see themselves in that. Um, that was um, never a reality for me or people of my era, you know. Um, we, we certainly, you know, we were on television, but that's when we were in the streets getting smashed. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> You know, so um, it, it, it's worked. It's worked in different kinds of ways, I guess. But um, I just feel that it's it's probably better to ask the, the women yeah. than me. You know. Yeah, I mean, I guess the intention with that question as well. It was just to reflect on on the massive impact that it has had, um, and it also is really beautiful to to hear that story um, about you know your tiny little relatives looking up mm-hmm. to be able mm-hmm. to see um, the significance of the work that you've done. If you're just tuning in, we've just played part one of an interview with distinguished professor Aileen Morton Robinson, where we talk about talking up to the white woman, which has just been published in its 20th anniversary edition by the university of Queensland press. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Next up, we'll hear the second part of the interview with Distinguished Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson about the 20th anniversary edition of Talking Up to the White Woman. I kind of wanted to dig a bit deeper into Uh the significance of articulating an Indigenous women's standpoint theory um, Uh and maybe explaining a bit about what that means to to listeners that might not be so familiar um, with that concept. Okay, well, standpoint theory came out of uh, US feminism and it was really um, in response to um, the notion of objectivity within uh, the production of knowledge. So the idea that we are disembodied uh, people, so the the, the mind-body split, is how we function as um, subjects was contested um, because feminism argued that, you know, we socialise from the lived experience um, and that's where we begin. So the the idea that um, that is subjective and should be dismissed actually um, is very much a male idea, number one, of the production of knowledge and two, it, it disembodies um, our, you know, we, we male knowledge very much about being disembodied 
and and I think if I can give an example to um, to our listeners is that if we look at the case of the High Court judge, right, and the young women that brought the um, the case against him, and what has come out subsequently is people knew, like people knew that he he behaved like this, and then. And then the question becomes, well, if they knew that he behaved like this, why didn't people say something, right? And for me, I can see the fact that when you have that kind of, um, you know, mind-body split and you have the professional and the personal split, you have the public and the private split, you could see that other other men could, could probably see the behaviour. But because he was professionally on top of his game, they would attribute the behaviour to the personal. So the personal becomes disconnected from the professional, uh, even though the context in which it was happening was very much the professional context, right? So it's, it's, so it's, the, it's, it's the way in which you can assume um, no responsibility to speak out because you actually think that this person is worthy professionally. And, and what he is doing in terms of sexually harassing is a personal behaviour, right? So, it, it, so what feminists uh, did was to say, well, actually those things are not disconnected, right? The way in which you um, behave personally is directly informs the way that you behave professionally. Yeah, there may be all kinds of rules and practices around your professionalism, but there is also um, it, 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 you are you were a subject before you became a professional, in that sense that you grew into your professionalism, and the growing into the professionalism means that you've been socialised as a subject in particular kinds of ways. Yeah, um, so and that informs the way that you function as a subject. So for feminists, it was a recognition that the embodiment of knowledge and the social situatedness of where we are as women is in, in, in a particular relationship to patriarchy, in, to, to the men, to men's world. And if we consider that we start from the position of being embodied subjects who are, are not male, how does that embodiment inform the way in which we see the world? And... And if we are wealthy white women, or how does that make, does, how does class make a difference? This was kind of the Marxist standpoint there is. And then, of course, the black feminists came in and said, well, race complicates that also in another way. So the social situatedness of where we are, um, you know, is complicated. So we can't necessarily even reduce the idea of woman to one or the other. We have to have a multiplicity in terms of the way in which gender is constructed. So, so standpoint acts as a, a way in which, um, and when I do my work with uh, my postgrads, it, it's, it's owning the fact that, that you come from a particular position um, and that the very things that have made you who you are are informing what you do. Right, so we are none of us are ever out of our bodies, and objectivity was fundamentally something that you know came out of the Enlightenment with the, with the Cartesian subject to uh, try. And it really emerged, uh, you know, it, it was wonderful with positivism, 
So it was the way in which we sought to put those things outside of ourselves in order to make sense of them. And in that very, very moment of disconnection, we also disconnected ourselves from the planet, right? So, so it, it wasn't just the mind-body split, it was the mind-body-earth split that occurred uh, with that thinking. Um, and, and that is, so that idea of separation, you know, um, categorization, uh, differentiation are all part of the epistemological drivers of how we produce knowledge. Right. And so they set up things like objective, subjective, masculine, feminine. So the binaries come into play in all kinds of ways. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, stand, standpoint was a way of um, grounding and showing that uh, women's, uh, you know, production of knowledge is valid. It has a, it has a particular objectivity if we want to go down that road in the sense that it is a particular position from which we theorise about the world that is different to men's and just as valid as men's. The objectivity part of it is that it is not purely subjective, you know, because it is about thinking about um, in the social construction of gender about how, what are the kinds of attributes that come into play in the production of gender whether you know um, you're bisexual, whether you're you know gay, like how how do we how do we um, produce knowledge that takes into account the multiplicity of our subject positions and our standpoints as humans? Um, I don't know if that is. No, that was clear or not. No, no, that was perfect because I think it also, um, you know, thinking about the embodied nature of being and of being in the world as an Indigenous woman or a woman of colour also raises some questions about the way that we think of legal concepts like sovereignty in this country and um, the way that those kind of debates play out and comes back into the the initial work and discussions that you've had um, both in talking up and in your later work about things like native title. Um, Mm -hmm. So perhaps um, moving towards closing off, um, I might ask a question if if that's all right, Um, perhaps foreshadowing some of the work that you're looking at now as well, Mm -hmm. um, maybe in relation to that, um, to that standpoint work that you've done Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so i'm i'm really (laughs) the work um that i the the new book will really be about indigenous social constructions of gender and it will be tied um to uh, indigenous sovereignty so it's looking i'm trying to um show how um, gender is configured through uh, relations to country and non-human, our non-human world. And in our, uh, like, for example, in our origin stories, creative beings change gender. They're male in one, they're female in another. And the 
the implications, I guess, for thinking through that also in terms of uh, relations and kinship and what how gender is configured through those things. So, so gender isn't not is not necessarily um, configured through white notions of masculinity and femininity, the, the heteronormativeness of it, if I can say that. I, so I'm trying to um, queer uh, that idea um, in relation to um, in, Indigenous um, social constructions of gender. So that's the, that's the new work. Um, and I've been doing more work around sovereignty like this. So we've uh, put out, so we've just uh, finished a critical Indigenous studies handbook, which Rutledge will have out next year. And in that is, is where I've published um, the arguments about, um, you know, the different, onto different ontological roots of the Westphalian system and Indigenous sovereignties and how um, you, you can't, like there's an incommensurability, right, because one is born in and of the earth, the other is born in relation to an extraterrestrial being that confers that authority, right. So there's, there's, this, there's an externalisation from the earth, um, whereas ours is in and of the earth, it's grounded. So, so ontologically they, they come from two different roots and in terms of the sort of epistemological framework, I guess, of um, Westphalian sovereignty, the notion of territorial integrity, um, in one sense you, the more that you kind of look at the uh, legal philosophy around sovereignty and the political philosophy around sovereignty, you can see sovereignty really as a regime of power. So it's like, it's kind of like the glue between politics and law. Yeah. And yet it is this thing that um, has such weight, but in, is, and, and it's, it's omnipresence is that, oh, is godlike. Yes. Hence, you know, so its ontology is actually continues in, in, in you know, and, and what I mean by that, it's like how America could invade Iraq on the basis that Iraq was perceived as a threat to its sovereignty. So what it did was it authorised itself to exercise that invasion. Yeah. So that's, a, that's, a, that's like, that's a godlike um, power, you know, to 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 do this stuff so i'm trying so i try to my you know my work is trying to get at um an understanding of for people to kind of understand what why indigenous sovereignty is is when i talk about it not being configured through the logic of capital that it's not configured through the logic of capital and it is it is not configured through um, an extraterrestrial, uh, you know, a, 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 a mono, a kind of this monolithic god, um, and they've, and it's not configured through a rights framework. So it's figured through a related, it's in a relational framework. Um, I'm rabbiting on a bit, but no, I, so, so, so this, so that's the new, that's the new work that I'm, that I'm in my head is trying to get into uh, and um, I'm 
you know, because I, I do think that we have to have and we have to begin to think about a new way to be human. And that and in order for that to happen, we really need to think about what makes us human now. Like and how do we how do we undo that? How do we break that? And and a big part of it is to get try and get people to understand how they've been disassociated from the planet. Yeah, and I think that was one of the things that I found quite moving in the in the new preface to the twentieth anniversary edition is to, is that focus on relationality and coming back to that relation with non-human as well as human others. Um, so thank you so much for for indulging me with with that little avenue down your new work. Um, <laughs> So before we wrap up, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to talk about? No, I, I think we've covered. Oh, except that where what one of the wonderful things is I can have the launch this time on country, uh, and that that's going to be on the thirty first, and um, I'm going to be able to share that with my community. Um, and I'm so looking forward to that. Um, I I hope that that um, something good will come out of the the second edition, and that we can have more conversations. And, and I want to see, um, you know, women of colour and Indigenous women um, having having. Um, forming more alliances and also sharing in our understandings of, of our different constructions of gender. Like I'm, um, I think that it's as humans we are we are wonderful creatures, um, at, and we 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 construct things, but and but we don't necessarily always share our knowledge with one another. You know, we don't necessarily. Um, bring the understanding to other and to value, you know, in doing that you, you come to um, respect and, and value differences and differences becomes a strength rather than a weakness, you know. And, and, and to me that's a really important thing or a place to get to is to understand that differences are strengths rather than weaknesses. I think that's a beautifully poetic way to, to wrap up this conversation. So I just want to say thank you so much again for your time. It really is such a privilege to get to speak to you about your work, which has so deeply shaped my own thinking and work and, and the work of so many others. Um, yeah. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for having me and sharing it. Space. <laughs> thank you. That was an interview with distinguished professor Aileen Morton Robinson about the 20th anniversary edition of her book, Talking Up to the White Woman, Indigenous Women and Feminism, which was released by the University of Queensland Press on the 2nd of July, 2020. Don't worry if you didn't catch the whole thing, because you can listen to the podcast later this week on our website at www.3cr.org.au slash Thursday dash breakfast. All right. So now let's head into another song. Um, and this one is one of my favourite songs of Thalma Plum's debut album, Better in Black. This one is Woke Blokes. I'm so sick of these woke blokes living their woke lives, fucking their woke girls, not like me. 
you're not like me He's like, kill the boy down the road Who hurt the girl real bad Unless he is my friend Or plays in my favorite band He says, change the day You should be grateful You're only staring the pie Babe, there's only so much I can do And your engine's gotta stop But I don't want to let it go If I do, no one will know How it feels to be alone And I just want it to stop I'm so sick of these woke blokes Living their woke lives Fucking their woke girls Not like me You're not like me I'm so sick of these woke blokes Living their woke lives Fucking their woke girls Not like me You're not like me He does yoga in the morning Take me to Bali, get me drunk on the full moon His friends all start to panic when me to make the news Yeah, it's like a witch hunt, I really don't share those views But I don't want to let it go If I do, no one will know How it feels to be alone and I just want it to stop I'm so sick of these woke folks living their woke lives Fucking their woke girls not like me You're not like me I'm so sick of these woke folks living their woke lives Fucking their woke girls not like me You're not like me I'm so sick of these woke folks living their woke lives Fucking their woke girls not like me You're not like me I'm so sick of these woke folks Living their woke lives Fucking their woke girls Not like me You're not like me that was Thalma Plum, Woke Blokes. That's all we've had time for today, but it's been a big show as usual. So just to recap, we heard an interview from Progress 2020 uh, between Mariki Onis and uh, MPD 150, which is a group that's working towards dismantling the police force in Minneapolis in the United States. Uh, we also heard a segment of 3CR's Women on the Line show where Anya Saravanan spoke with Tigest Kibede, who's a counselor and volunteer at AMSA's Youth Connect, about what's been happening in the housing estates after the lockdown was announced in Melbourne. And finally, we heard an interview between myself and distinguished professor Aileen Morton Robinson about the 20th edition of Talking Up to the White Woman. That's all we've got time for today. Um, yep. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll we'll be talking to you next week. And now to Lost in Science. Are you a 
person with a disability? If you are an Australian citizen, a permanent resident or a recently accepted refugee or humanitarian entrant under the age of 65, you are able to apply for access to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. If you have met access requirements, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, also known as the NDIS, will help you access the government-funded supports you need. To find out more, visit the NDIS website or go to your nearest NDIS partner office and ask for a language interpreter to help you. NIDA and NDIA are sponsors of this radio station.